I need to water my houseplants. Uh, no, don't overwater your houseplants, Tegan. Nah, mine is like the neglect for five weeks and then be like, oh, fuck, that one's definitely dead now. Uh, I need I, I need a glass of water. Can I do that while being strapped to Not everything? with the headphones on. Please don't break things. They have a spiral cord for a reason. Wow. I hope the, the sound of flowing water is now making all of you listeners want to pee. <laughs> yeah. if, if, that, if that stays in the show. <laughs> yes, yes, it shall. Then... Uh, okay. Okay, no. Yoram has settled himself like the old man he is with many <laughs> grunts and groans. Uh, yeah. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes. Always premature, Tegan. <laughs> I probably always play this one random song I found. That's, I like it. Yeah, it's good. Welcome to Plants and Papats. This is my soothing voice. I'm now doing the introduction because Yoram has been banned. Because after 10 or 11 episodes, he still can't remember the fucking name of our fucking podcast. <laughs> yes, I think it's the platypus and... Yoram also had some gin earlier. This may be affecting his reasoning. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm just going to rest my eyes for a little bit. <laughs> no. God. Uh, so today on the podcast, um, as we mentioned before, we've decided to go with a shorter format where only one of us does a journal presentation and we talk some more fun facts and some favorite plants and stuff like that. And it's Yaram's turn to present this yes, week. Yes, I Ooh. have a paper. And as you just mentioned on the Instagram story that you can't see now anymore because this is way beyond for 24 hours after this story has been posted. So I did not Guys, do my homework Not to spoil well. the magic, we, we sometimes record our podcast in advance. Yeah, because we're very busy people um, dealing with <laughs> many different <laughs> With holes in our lives. I just filled mine. Your arm has a baby. Yes. I, it, it created new holes, different kinds of holes. But oh, God. Your arm wants to tell you about the toiletry behavior of his baby. But it's not that kind of podcast, Your arm. Sorry, no. Okay. Um, my paper this week... Um, it's called Linking CRISPR-Cas9 Interference with... Interference? In, interference. Inter Avocado. Avocado. Linking CRISPR-Cas9... Interference. Interference. <laughs> Linking CRISPR-Cas9 Interference in cassava... Cassava <laughs> to the evolution of editing-resistant... Evolution. <laughs> it's like a vole? Like the vole is a small borrowing animal, you know? <laughs> Evolution of editing resistant Gemini viruses. It's by Devang Meta. You have to do the title again. This is just Link. offensive if we leave it like that. Let's try again. It's linking CRISPR Cas9 interference and cassava to the evolution of editing resistant Gemini viruses by w Devang Meta and Hervé van der Schuren um, from the um, ETH in Zurich. Cool. And yeah, it has CRISPR in the title. I'm all for CRISPR. Um, just by by coincidence of my my work stuff, I have to had to read a lot about CRISPR, uh, but it's next actually a very exciting technology. We have put some articles on CRISPR on the blog that we might link here, um, and in this case, they're using CRISPR, but not in the way that you think that they use CRISPR. Do you want to maybe explain what the way people think that people might use CRISPR? So normally CRISPR, you have a ca couple to Cas9. This is like the most basic idea of CRISPR. Yes. And usually what you do is you, if you 
care about an organism like cassava, you design the CRISPR to target something in cassava. And what CRISPR-Cas9 then does is find a little uh, piece of DNA and then do um, a double strand break. So schnip, schnip. Yes, schnip, schnip through the DNA. And then the, the um, repair mechanisms from the cell arrive and then they repair it and sometimes they make mistakes and then you get point mutations. And this is what you're after because these point mutations um, can... Destroy the function of yes. your gene. Can, yeah, or alter them slightly or like there's many things that can happen. And yeah, usually you put a CRISPR-Cas9 in a system to change the system. But in this case... They did something different. They put a CRISPR-Cas9 in cassava to change something in a virus that attacks cassava, um, namely the African cassava mosaic virus. Um, and this is just a common, a very widespread uh, virus that attacks the plants and makes them sick and then reduces yield in the process. So if you grow cassava to, to eat it, uh, you don't really want to get these uh, virus infections. And so they thought, hey, we're smart. We are doing a, a CRISPR-Cas9 against a pr um, an essential gene in the virus. So when the virus attacks, then CRISPR-Cas9 cuts something in the viral DNA and it can't replicate anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's stopped that. It might kill one cell, but it can't spread anymore. Um, so they did that. And uh, what they saw was that both the populations that, that were changed, with, that were expressing CRISPR-Cas9, and the population that was not changed, the wild-type population, they were both this, uh, affected the same way by the virus. So it didn't seem to have an effect. Didn't work. It didn't work, although they could sh show when they s looked at the gene sequence of the virus um, that the CRISPR did change something there. Um, so it seems to have targeted and worked, but then the selection pressure that was created very quickly pushed the virus to um, evolve and uh, slightly change the recognition site. So the next generation of viruses or the surviving generation of viruses had a slightly changed recognition site and then the CRISPR didn't work anymore. So they just created a resistance in the virus against the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Is this terrifying? This seems a little bit terrifying. It is quite terrifying, actually, because... <laughs> um, I mean, it's also a really cool way to engineer viruses if you're like, I want to make like viruses that have new traits. Let's start cutting them up and see how they <laughs> respond. And now you have suddenly like a new different... Like it makes changes. It does make changes, and it works. Um, yeah, it, it it works in a biological system, and you can create selection pressures and specific genes in your virus. But usually, viral populations are not really your production uh, s uh, systems. Um, sure. So yeah. usually, you don't have a big interest in just having a very good virus. Um, yeah, because viruses apart suffer. from like very special technical applications, but not really like for when you use them as a for drug treatments or something like this. There's like yeah. viral there's, in medicine. There's some ideas. There's also using um, viruses as a um, gene transferal mechanism. I feel like that felt wasn't there was somebody who died. Is that linked to viral? <laughs> okay, and here we betray that we know nothing about anything to do with human health. We're plant yeah. people all the way. Yeah. Um, Feel free to like phone in or write in or whatever about what yeah. that was that we were just talking about right now because we do not know. But the researchers from this paper, they were, were quite um, 
what's what's the word they they took the right precautions like first of all this was not a field trial so they did not just make a field population of viruses resistant sure <laughs> um, to this i mean they're just resistant to this crispr cas9 thing it doesn't mean that these viruses are suddenly resistant to other things that might kill the viruses mm-hmm. or might uh, hinder their their sp- uh, spreading but just like if you would bring this system out in the field they would immediately get um uh, resistant against uh, against it and then if you then would change the system you would immediately create a new resistance so it would be a very fast paced um uh, race that the viruses would pretty much always win Com- like mm-hmm. if you think of like classic things when you have um drugs that uh, like uh, antibiotica and then you uh, it's then like an you- arms race is a technical yeah. thing that like wherever you have something that you're trying to affect that thing is also trying to survive or trying to beat you so it's like prey and predator the predator gets faster but the prey also gets faster or gets better at hiding or yeah and in most cases like for for herbicides and stuff like that or other pesticides at least you have like a phase where it works quite well yeah and then it it takes a while until the the pest comes up again and survives Mm -hmm. in this case the virus immediately survived so they did not see one a a single like effect on the health of the population because viruses just have such a high uh, rate of turnover that they the Mm. selection pressure works very quickly and they evolve very quickly but um they the researchers uh, very strongly stated in this paper that this is something to keep in mind when designing any system like this um, in in the future, and also that this um, this use of CRISPR-Cas9 that is constitu- constitutively expressed in um, in the in the plant against an outside organism, that this is not really covered by any regulation so far. So technically, mm-hmm. right now, um, it would be possible to use like to build a plant like this to, to and and put it through regulation and there would not be a, an appropriate framework to deal with that really and they stress that this needs to be included and needs to be followed up on um for further crop development i feel like this is like the barbara streisand effect you know the barbara streisand effect <laughs> yeah when you the, by trying to fight bad news you increase these the the reach of these bad yeah, news. yeah so she like somebody published like the floor plan of her home or something really creepy or her address online and then she was like hey let's force this person to take it online and she took the person to court but by taking it to court, suddenly, like this, this website of her address that got like five hits got like five billion hits because everybody wanted to know what the court case was about. And this is something like I hadn't thought about using plants to deliberately change viruses to make them more X Y Z. Now I'm thinking about. It. <laughs> <laughs> now it, I think the the idea is not new to have something that works on a regulatory mechanism against um against pests or against something that you want to control mm-hmm. right this is the the rnai system these rna interference where you create a short piece of rna and that targets another piece of messenger rna and st- uh, triggers its degradation and with that you can uh, downregulate genes uh, to almost to a knockout um, state yes yeah, so the idea is that, like if you make in a plant an rnai against like an insect gene and that insect gene is required for the insect to survive but it's not in the plant so i think actin filaments was what was used in in previous research that came out of um my my lab group um yeah the the plant is fine but then the insect is going to die because it gets like all of its actin chopped up all of its rna chopped up yeah and the the idea is that the yeah the, the the insects eat it and then the rna has to be ingested and then has to not be degraded in the in the intestines and then be go to the cells where it can act but it's um 
yeah, it's a system that has been uh, at least in research been used, and there's also some uh, um, some research being done on doing that. For example, in honeybee to uh, fight off some of the diseases that they have. I think um, okay. Linked, linked to linked to the colony collapse disorder. Yeah, or this, this like colony. This? I'm I'm just looking for the English word for these like these mites mm-hmm. that affect them. And uh, the ideas, no, 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 uh, yeah, I don't know the the species name, but these these mites that affect honeybee and it's a big problem in honeybee. Uh, uh, it's cultures. not at all. It's varroa mite. <laughs> it's nothing nothing to do with N. If anybody uh, knows what I was thinking about just then, please call. Him. But I know I I don't really know what what. Uh, came of it but there was a plan to um, feed honeybees with an RNAi sugar like RNAi in a sugar solution uh, that they would take up these RNAs and then when the mites try to feed on the bees they die from the RNAi in there and the interesting thing about everything about this is these are not um, metabolites or chemicals in the classic sense that you would use for control of of pests Mm -hmm. right usually you would spray a chemical and that would kill the organism but it would also kill other organisms that are similar mm-hmm. but in this case it's it uh, works against um the genetic information of these organisms or of these viruses in the in the case of the so series that you can make it much more specific yes so mm-hmm. you would if you have a specific pest you would only kill that pest um, you would only kill the mite that affects the honeybees and no other like related species to mites or not even the bees themselves i mean i always have a question with this because i think in order for it to be effective, you have to target a gene that is very essential. That is like is something that, yeah, with without it, that mite will die. But I think the thing that, like from my knowledge, maybe I'm wrong. Somebody again, feel free to comment. But if something is essential, it often has the it's it's more likely to be conserved. So like it's again like an actin filament, something that that um, defines the structure of the cell or how things are moved around the cell. This is going to be conserved or very similar in. A mite, but also in a spider, but also in the honeybee itself. So I'm, yeah. I'm always, I'm always interested in this sort of stuff. So like even with, with any of these things, like okay, CRISPR-Cas9 has a certain recognition, and the recognition is like quite specific. You have these these guide RNAs, which which chart where to go. But if you have one base pair wrong, it's not going to cut up all of those RNAs, but it will still have some activity usually. So it's never like a completely on and off situation. It's kind of like a. Yeah a gray zone yeah absolutely it's also something that i worry about um both in terms of specificity if that these these claims are actually true if you can really target that specifically an organism but also um then the fact that it doesn't take much um selection pressure to change it like in the virus it happened very quickly Mm. but you can also imagine seeing that in like a mite population like all of these like especially when you're talking insects you're talking like thousands of individuals Mm. and so the chance of random mutations that lead to uh, resistance are very high uh if yeah but on the other hand this is a benefit against the chemicals so if you're using a chemical spray you need one mutation to no longer have so usually chemicals work by blocking an enzyme that's needed to do something very important. And sometimes you can have one thing that changes and it can be a lot of different things. So it can be that the 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 insect no longer takes up the chemical or that it more rapidly digests the chemical that it never gets into its cells or that the enzyme that it blocks has a change in itself so that it no longer fits into this, like the chemical no longer fits and blocks into it. There's lots of different like simple changes, but when you use things which are based on like RNA, so these like, um, like let's say 20 base pairs 
firstly, you have the specificity, but you can also target multiple things at one time. Yeah. And then if I target not just like one gene like actin, but if I target like three or four genes, the chance that that bug gets resistance to all five or four, I said four, at the same time is very low. And the thing is, if he doesn't get the resistance to all four at the same time, he's dead. So if he gets resistance to one of them, he's not passing that resistance on to the next generation because in a deal situation, he dead. Yeah. Yeah, at least that's the, the, the theory. But if you look, yeah, now this, I mean, the study in Cassava also, I think, uh, only used very few target sites. I think one or two in total. Um, so, yeah, again, they would have this problem that you can just very quickly adapt. Um, it, I think it, it will require more studies and more research and if uh, how that works because all of the systems I've seen so far, they were all like proof of concepts that used one target and then they could see like uh, in the case of the RNAi against this beetle that, this, it, that it worked. But it hasn't been done yet to do like the five RNAi's against five different genes in this beetle and then mm -hmm. also for other species and so on. So Stacking. Yeah, I find this this whole system is a very interesting thing but this this cassava study shows how how quickly you can just like add another selection pressure that the biological system the ecosystem very quickly reacts to and sort of nullifies it and and makes it void and then you just edit something to it and <laughs> uh and didn't change much but just created another yeah change in in this viral uh dna and here we need a quote of life uh 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes the best quote for any biologist <laughs> in yes. any time <laughs> yes whenever something just jeff doesn't Goldberg? die when you put antibiotics to it or any other like you want to die something uh kill something and it just doesn't die and then it's just like yeah life jeff goldblum life oh. fights away yeah so this is pretty much the the story it's, it's very short um but i think it opens up this this bigger idea of of using of targeting genetic information instead of targeting um yeah instead of targeting pathways or like using instead drugs of using chemicals yeah, yeah drugs mm -hmm. i mean technically and, i mean the big problem is as you said like we have a lot of resistance already developing to the chemicals so we need to find so it's it's not necessarily like that it's a better way but it's another tool in the toolbox that we can use yeah. because yeah, and we care more and more about the off-target effects of chemicals that kill off insects that we don't want to kill. Also, something that 30, 40 years ago were not a big thing. Like, uh, that's another discussion we could have, maybe at a different time. But um, people often talk about like the obvious example is like glyphosate and Roundup Ready, um, and how whether or not they can have like problems and cause cancer is the obvious thing that's in the media right now, and the argument shouldn't be about whether these things can happen in an absolute manner because of course they can. I mean, you have some sort of bell curve. It can happen. Um, the question should be, is it better than the alternative? And unfortunately, that's the state we're at where we have to feed a world of, what, 9 billion? How many people do we have now? Uh, last number I <laughs> Too was many seven. people um, with not enough land and with an environment that we're constantly screwing up more and more every day. So we're making the situation worse for 7. ourselves. 7.5 billion okay, in 2017. I, I vastly overestimated the population of the world. Um, yeah, but the question is not like, sh should we be doing this? I mean, this is, this is an ultimate question, but the question is, can we do it in a better way, a more efficient way, without having to let millions of people die by switching to... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's a really hard question. It's one of these questions where there's, in my opinion, no good scientific answer to this because 
depending on how you set up your measurement to find the answer, you will influence the answer that you will find. So there's obviously you can say, yeah. Uh, there are no objective criteria here, right? Yeah, you exactly. have to choose what you're willing to to accept and what your, your trade-off is. Yeah, and you have to do that as a society. Where did this get published in the end? Uh, this got published in uh, Genome Biology. Okay, because it's, it's interesting because in some ways it's, it is a negative result. Like it didn't do what they wanted to do. But I mean, they, they framed it positively by saying it's, it triggers the evolution in the general yeah. viruses. Yeah, but I mean, this is the, the general argument that it's really important that we get to see this kind of stuff because if not... Absolutely. Yeah, if you only see when it works to control the virus in question, then you're not going to see results like this and you're not going to understand the system as a whole, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so this is, this is my paper, just like a brief look into non-chemical linking CRISPR-Cas9 interference to <laughs> in cassava <laughs> to the evolution <laughs> of editing resistant gemini viruses a look into non-chemical plant protection tools and the caveats that they bring with them it's a long title it is uh, a long title with words that might be too complicated for me Yeah, so today it's my turn to do my favorite plant and I am cheating a little bit because I'm using my homework from an, another lesson to fulfill the requirements for this lesson. Um, I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> it's always an option, Yarm. It's it's not so much about like cheating. It's more about like multitasking and something, something. Use buzzwords here, like integrating <laughs> and synergizing. Synergies. Synergies. It's definitely hanging <laughs> yeah. outside of the box to promote synergies. To go inside the box. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I recently, as part of another um, blogging role I have, I recently read a really cool paper about Phoenix Dactylifera. Do you have any idea that what that is? Like the is it again a Harry Potter thing? Nothing to do with Harry Potter. The look on Yoram's face makes it really clear to me that he does not read the things that I am putting out there into the universe, which is just very deeply upsetting for me. I, as his I friend, I did not see that. Where, I have where a child. It? I'm so busy. Blah blah where blah. Was it, it's always a, it wasn't promoted. I don't think so. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, so Phoenix Dacti, uh, Dactylifera. It's basically a date, a date palm. Um, and it's important because it's one of the few crop species which can actually grow in desert environments. So it's it's been really, really important since like way back in time in the Middle Eastern region. So dates have been a staple food for literally thousands of years. Um, you know what dates are. They make these super sweet seeds which have like a, a casing which is just like filled with sugar. And it's probably the most perfect food in the whole world. Like... If I could only eat dates for the rest of my life, I wouldn't necessarily be unhappy. Yeah, but you also would be very healthy. <laughs> I would be quite round <laughs> and squishy like a date. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, so because they can grow in these desert environments, they're quite important, obviously, in countries where they have a lot of desert and in this kind of um, farming system. And the, I recently got the chance to read and write a short report on a paper which looked at how the embryo from the date actually develops. So, okay, you eat the date fruit, but of course you know that if you buy the dates that haven't been pitted in the middle of the fruit, there's the seed, which is from which the new plant will spring, the new life will develop. Um, and most of the plants we studied in the lab or even that we have like in our gardens at home, they have a seed and within the seed, there's like a completely developed embryo. So there's something which already has two cotyledons 
And when the seed em- uh, opens, first the root comes out and then the cotyledons come out. But those cotyledons have already developed inside the seed. Mm. Like they come out, but they don't like get completely created from nothing in, in most of the cases when you're looking at Arabidopsis or, or something like this. And date is super cool because when you have this this date, so imagine like a football-shaped date, when it germinates, what happens is you get this kind of long tube that grows out of the date. And as time goes by, the bottom half of the tube starts to get suspiciously kind of rooty looking. And the top of the tube is still connected to the date fruit like a kind of umbilical cord. And there's no leaves coming out from this tube. It's like a tube. But at one stage, the top of the tube kind of splits open, like a split just forms down the middle like an abyss. And out of that place, the cotyledons come out. Like it makes it, it makes its leaves from Tegan this place. It's just like... I am enacting... Interpretive dancing to germination of the date. I'm quite enjoying it. It's such a shame. I think we'll put a picture in the show notes or um, up at least on our blog. It's such a shame that you can't see the visual beauty of me being a date. But it's called remote germination. Um, so the germination occurs not directly from the seed, but it, it first forms this tube and then out of the tube it germinates. Um, and what's really cool is that the embryo is kind of in this tube and then while the tube is growing, in the first stages of the tube, like protruding out of the date fruit, the embryo is arrested, so nothing's happening with the embryo. And only after the tube has grown a few centimeters, the embryo is like, okay, now it's time to start developing. And this is in comparison to other plants where like the embryo is like, developed like it's got cotyledons it's ready to go so most plants the embryo is ready to go and then they pause it there and they say okay let's wait until we have water or the right conditions and then we'll release the embryo but in the case of the date palm it releases the tube but the embryo is not developed and only when the conditions are good enough that everything's working well with the tube then it's like okay now we develop the embryo and even at this stage it's developing the embryo but it's keeping it inside this tube and then only after everything is still looking good for a few more days and it's like okay now we actually release it into the wild is it the only one that's doing that no no there are other plants um species which have different methods of this kind of remote germination and different um methods of like having this protective um development and this is the exact point so the the word protective is key here because it's growing in the desert so it puts a tube out and like maybe it's just desert so it has to make sure that things are right. So the idea is that... What happens if it's not right? Does it then... I, I'm not sure. So I have to admit that the, the paper that um, came out recently didn't look into... Like, I would really like to see experiments where they don't give water versus giving water or don't give, like, the right conditions and see if the pausing of the embryo development stays... Like, if it stays paused for longer. I'm not sure. Okay. But I'm guessing the idea is that, like... You only so this is also a thing that you see in mammals where like um for example kangaroos I'm going to go to the Australian example again they can have <laughs> like a fertilized embryo and it's just like oh, a zygote I guess it's like a fertilized egg and it just like holds on and then only when there's enough like water available does it actually develop into an embryo that then like can be born. Oh. So it's kind of a similar thing where the the plant is like hey let's see if things are right okay now they're right now we go to the next step and it kind of like delays everything by one cool and i have to say like in the paper this was kind of a the first look at this species in this manner so the cause and effect is not quite there but i think like the logical argument is that the reason it has this embryonic um developmental pause is because 
it wants to like it's it's a way of protecting it from the harsh environment of the desert so it's like an adaptive mechanism and i'm always super fascinated when you have these like really extremophile plants which can grow in places where like other organisms just would immediately show up and die so yeah that yeah. is why the date palm which is also known as phoenix dactylifera is our favorite plant of today phoenix is it written like the like phoenix? joachim phoenix i don't know Joachim phoenix joachim phoenix like the the actor phoenix Ah, ah, no, no, I wrote Joachim like the German. <laughs> nee, like jo Jochen. Jochen? Oh God, guys. Yeah, jo Joachim Phoenix. Yeah, so like like Phoenix, like the, the mystical bird that gave Harry Potter the sword. And now take away the Joachim. Joachim? Yeah. And add a dactylifera at the end. <laughs> and then we put the keywords date palm, just like yeah. to help. Yeah. Okay, that's my favorite plant of the day. I now want to know how this genus got called Phoenix. Is it important? I mean, I guess it rises out of the heat of the desert. Maybe that's the reason. <laughs> Phoenix is a genus of 14 species of palms. Yeah. They have big leaves. I don't think this is the time and place to work out this. <laughs> no, uh, it's time for some fun <gasps> Oh facts. my God, it's Pliny the Elder. It's Pliny the Elder who gave it the name. Who? Pliny the Elder. You know, like... like Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger and they watched like Vesuvius go off and I think Pliny the Elder even died in that. You're such a nerd. You know all about like this old stuff. It's Pliny. Like everything comes back to Pliny. He's like the guy. I mean you listeners you don't know that but Tegan told me that she was like really into this stuff when she was younger because she's a real nerd. No, actually my sister was a nerd and I just like Okay. Hurt. So you were a pro nerd by proxy. No, shut up. I'm a, I'm a nerd. It's it's fun to be a nerd I think in these days. No, I'm, I'm a jock. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I, technically, I would have had to learn this because I did Latin in school and um, read books about Romans. I would like to say that I'm vindicated. Pliny the Elder died when he was trying to rescue people when Mount Vesuvius erupted. We're going down a Wikipedia tunnel now. This is not healthy for the podcast. No, no, it's uh, fun facts. Fun, fun facts. facts. I, I did my homework today and <laughs> I wrote twenty fun facts about cats. <laughs> about cats. Fuck you. <laughs> and I looked so terrible. <laughs> Did you know, Tegan, that cats sleep 16 to 18 hours per day? I did because I actually had a fact about that last week on the podcast, which was much more scientific and involved cameras. <laughs> and the best thing about this site is that I just randomly found is they have like, a, next to the fact, I have like fun like takes on it. And it's just like, but even when they seem to be sleeping, they aren't always asleep. They wouldn't want to miss an opportunity to hear a treat back open, right? Ew. <laughs> yes. Uh, did you know that calico okay, cats stop. are almost female? Um, I have something which comes from fizz.org. It's from a couple of weeks ago now, but, but I guess by the time we release it, it'll be from like a month ago. And it's talking about the idea of biological scaling. And this is the fact that like we have hands and cats have hands, but the size of the hands on the cat are not as big as our hands and roughly speaking the size of the cat's hands are scaled based on the size of the cat itself right yeah okay so this article is just based on something which is not at all plant related but is instead about bacteria um it's gray at Alec came out in cell this year called nucleoid size scaling and intracellular organization of translation across bacteria 
And it's just talking about the fact that the nucleoid of bacteria, which is where they have their DNA because they don't have a real nucleus because that's what makes them bacteria. Basically, they don't have a nuclear compartment. It also shows the scaling. So very small bacteria have very small nucleoids and very big fat bacteria have big fat nucleoids. This is kind of a cool discovery. Oh. Yeah. Give us another cat fact. The scientific name for hairball is Bezoa. This we know from Harry Potter. <laughs> like inside a goat, it has magical properties, right? Okay, I have another fact. I mean, it's not really a fact. <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> Did you know that a cat cannot see directly beneath its nose? Can anybody see directly <laughs> beneath their nose? You can't see what's under your chin, Tegan. And does it also mean like beneath my nose, like inside the layers of skin of my <laughs> nose or like on my lip? Yeah, no, it's... it's Fun fact, cats can't see that. Okay, don't insult them. One day maybe we'll be writing for the fun facts cat page <laughs> sometime in the future if our career really pans out right. <laughs> um, so the other thing that I wanted to comment on today was something that I found on um, National Geographic, but I think I originally found it via the plante.org Facebook page. And it's a family tree. It's a really nice diagram. We'll put it again in the show notes of the family tree of citrus. And citrus is super cool because we've basically been cultivating it for quite some time. Um, and almost all of the, the citrus types that you can imagine right now, think about it. Yeah, you got it like orange, mandarin, yeah, blah, blah, blah. They basically come from just three ancestral species. So there's these three species which came from like Southeast Asia and then they got developed or cultivated and so on and the three species are citrons which i guess we don't really eat in their current state but then pomelos which we do eat and mandarins and by making different combinations of all of these well all of them like these three guys we have all of the kind of grapefruit tangelo blood orange sweet orange lemon like lime like these things that have come across into the citrus market and there's quite a pretty diagram that is on internet so i'll have the link to that oh, well. nice yeah and it's kind of a nice idea of how domestication can really make exciting new crop varieties that please people i'm a big kumquat fan myself i like yuzu i don't think yuzu is on the list such a hip <sighs> then i don't really care for this list do i yeah, and there there are some like extra stuff where there's like dotted lines and they're not really sure how things evolved or there's like, mm, there might be an intermediate that has since become extinct. We're not really sure what's happening. And maybe like another citrus was also the parent of this. So it's, it's a little bit messy, but the basic story is that there's kind of three main species. But also I wouldn't think that Mandarin was, like if you had to guess like which were the the original species. The I OG would not. species. No, Mandarin, I did know that. I, I didn't know the pomelo and the citron. Citron, I don't even know what that is still. So. Is it French for citrus, uh, for, for lemon? No. <laughs> no, there's like lemon is like lemon. In, lemon is a mix of citron. It's just a cultivation of citron, actually. So the, the original citron had like much fleshier fruit and I guess was less juicy. Yeah. Uh, speaking of evolution, this is not a cat fact because there is no good. Uh, I mean, there is one more cat fact. Did you know that they can't move their jaws side to side? Yeah. Even cow printed cats can't do that. It's a terrible. Like the person who wrote these, they. They have your sense of humor, huh? <laughs> no. It's like. <laughs> Okay, I think it's time no, to wrap up now. No, I have a fun fact. Um, that's an article that didn't make it into 
uh, blog post or on this show um, is uh, because you talked about the evolution and like the, the crossing of everything. Um, just a quick fun fact about angiosperms, um, which are the non-naked uh, seeds. It's flowering plants. German, it's the Bedecktsamer. Yeah, but it's it's flowering plants to everyone else. If you speak German, you uh, you will appreciate how nice the word bedecktsamer is. But also bedeckt doesn't necessarily mean non-naked. It could also it's be like stuff. Yeah, but the other is, one is the, the nacktsamer. But my table can also be bedeckt. It's the naked. It could just be like a seed that has like dishes on top of it. Yeah, but it's the flowering plants, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, the plants that form flowers, and they did, there's a study where they looked at how old are angiosperms. When is the first flowering plant? Three hundred fifty million, no, four hundred fifty million years ago. No, uh, the first flowering plant emerged in a Triassic period, which is uh, two hundred ten million years ago. Um, and yeah, they what in the study they they uh, compared fossil data that they had for the for the um, aging. For to, to assign ages to different species and then they compared the chloroplast genomes of literally hundreds of species and then f built a phylogenetic tree which is where you see like which when genomes are very similar to each other they're closely mm. related and if they're different they're very distantly related and with that you can build a tree similar to what happened in citrus and then they used fossils to date that tree and to like put landmarks on, on the time scale and with that I could see that angiosperms originated in the Triassic period which is just before the Jurassic period. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and because this is already the whole story, this didn't make it into a full segment on the show. And it's just a fun fact. These people worked a lot. I have another one. Do you want to hear the other one or do you want to end on that? No, um, I can go. <laughs> I can do this all day. Um, so I, I, another thing that I was looking, so we have a segment on the blog, which is called, did they really call it that? And we're looking for like weird names of genes in... Um, plants so genes or proteins or or mutants um which have kind of cool names and one of them which should be just like not like dad so it's something to do with paternal inheritance anyway i was looking at cool ones and i found something in the animal field which is called the Dra dracula mutant and in animals it's involved in um like heme biosynthesis i think so it's involved in like iron responses so it's this idea um that dracula like sucks blood so this this kind of makes sense and then i was like hmm, i wonder if like plants also have a similar dracula because often as we know many of the genes that are present in animals are also conserved in plants especially when it comes to like heme and other essential like basic yeah basic, basic building blocks yeah yeah, so I looked up Dracula and I found something. There is a Dracula in Arabidopsis. It has nothing to do with iron in any way. Um, but it's actually... <laughs> it just comes out at night and hunts down the researchers working on it. That's <laughs> <laughs> so depressing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Dracula is a um, mutant that was uh, defined. Um, or also a gene because same, same. Um, but in plants, it's involved in shade avoidance so it's this idea that dracula is a scared of the light and the reason it didn't make it onto the blog is because it turned out that the dracula gene um, was actually something that had already been described so it's phytochrome b and phytochromes are known to be involved in light responses and also the response of plants to whether or not they're being shaded by other plants so in the end un unfortunately the research they found something that was already kind of known they just found it in a different method of mm. discovery but yeah dracula is kind of a cute yeah. a cute genome yes um <laughs> did you know that in ancient egypt humans shaved their eyebrows and as a way of showing grief when a family cat had passed 
And with that, I think we're done with the podcast for day to day. Um, if you want to follow us, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Plants for Pets. <laughs> this is so terrible. We're on Twitter <laughs> at Plants for Pets. Your usually controls the Twitter feed. So if you do reach out to us there, you might get terrible cat facts that he's stolen from the internet let me know what your favorite cat sounds is because cats have approximately a oh hundred vocal sounds we're now like losing half of our audience <laughs> who likes dogs um please feel free to rate us or give us any comments or feedback on what you'd like us to change on the podcast <laughs> also on the blog if you have any like cool scientists that you found recently that you want us to feature just write into us like i yeah. mean you can comment on the blog you can also write to us on facebook yeah, and pretty much wherever you write plants and pipettes onto the internet, you can message oh, us. Oh, we are winning in the Google statistics, like the analysis right now. Yes, uh, it's just like you you say plants and pipettes in the mirror three times, and we and will we appear and ask and, and take, take your <laughs> and questions. Show you and something about cats. <laughs> let's give you a random cat fact. We have a rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts, but this is only based on two ratings. So please give us some more yeah, five-star ratings. The, the error bars are not great on this yet. Like It's not statistically significant in yeah. any way because we all know you need at least three replicas. <laughs> yes. But then it's solid science. So give us a third review on iTunes and then we're statistically relevant. And with that, I am thoroughly embarrassed for both Yoram and myself. So I think we're going to say adios, adieu and, and goodbye. <laughs> the opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. See you next time. Bye.